The framework of business is completely different in the new normal. To explore culture as the strategy, we have to look in places we haven't before. Looking into company culture from the C-suite to employees and from Fortune 500 to startups. It's time to understand the human side of company culture and the new shape it is taking. This is the conversation on Culture Factor 2.0, and I'm your host, Holly Shannon. Rashad Tabakawala has been the Chief Strategist and Chief Growth Officer at Publicis Group, an advertising and communications firm with 80,000 employees. Business Week named him a top business leader, and Time named him a top five marketing innovator. An authentic thought leader, educated from the University of Bombay and the University of Chicago. Additionally, he is a worldwide speaker for notables like Bank of America, Walmart, Google, and Facebook. So naturally, I could probably drop the mic right now, but I've watched and listened to Rashad on Morning Brew a couple of times now and felt that his conversations around company culture had to be shared with our community and listeners. The other piece of this is I have just finished reading his book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. So I really think it's an appropriate time to be discussing his book, especially since we are all immersed in work from home and all wondering what company culture is going to look like in the new normal. So hello, Rashad Tabakawala, and welcome to Culture Factor 2.0. Thank you, Holly. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Excellent. So let's get started because we have a lot to cover. So in your book, Restoring the Soul of Business, you touch on people leave bosses more than they leave companies. So my question to you is, what makes a great boss and what do they need to instill in their culture to succeed in keeping the best talent and motivating people? The characteristics of a good boss are not very different than the characteristics of a great leader. Plus, they have a couple of other thoughts. But a great leader has five characteristics. One is they are capable, which is they know what they do. You want to work for a person who knows the field, and she can help direct you if necessary. The second is integrity. It is very important to have a boss who you can trust, who uses real data and facts, and who doesn't stab you behind your back. The third characteristic really is empathy, which is a person who can think about other people, not just about you, but about other people in the organization and customers and consumers. The fourth is vulnerability, a boss who recognizes they may not have all the answers, they can make mistakes, This actually leads to the boss surrounding themselves with other talented people and creating an environment where they can speak up. And the fifth, but very important, is inspiration, because true leaders inspire while bosses command. If a company is heavily focused on the spreadsheet and the story the data tells, they will design everything from training to scaling around that. Um, Why is that flawed? Most organizations, uh, fortunately, take a much more balanced approach, and most heads of human resources or people management tend to recognize that there are two parts of the HR business. One part is actually requires to be run by the numbers. 
And those basically are things that have to be done either for legal or for diversity or other reasons where you need to basically follow protocol, uh, follow particular uh, salary bans, etc. Those are very important because when you leave those, you at some stage have to explain why someone is paid more or someone is paid less, for instance, or what is the process of bringing someone in or what is the process of terminating someone. Those things cannot be done just by I felt like or that was what it was, especially in larger organizations. On the other hand, so that is what I basically call the scaffolding of the HR business, which tends to be spreadsheet oriented. Many companies do recognize that there's another component, but not all companies recognize this. And the other component has got to do less with the individual as a cog in the machine, but more as a human being. And that is how do you grow talent? And to grow talent, you have to actually do that in a very personalized way, which is their strengths, their weaknesses, their hopes, their dreams. Because eventually talent management is about individuals working with individuals versus a process. So the good companies balance both. Uh, there's no company that can do it just through storytelling because that company will get into legal trouble. And companies that do it just through spreadsheet or tilt a little too much towards spreadsheet eventually find that they have an environment that is toxic, non-collaborative, and to a certain extent, almost fearing and fear-filled. And uh, you see that really, or you saw the transition between a different approach to HR, among other things, when Satya Nadella took over Microsoft, prior to which Microsoft stack ranked their employees, which meant the bottom 10% had to go find a job every year. When you do that, people compete with each other. And also it was an environment where the external competition was considered the enemy. Uh, Satya Nadella came in and said, we're gonna go from a learn it all, from a know-it-all mindset to a learn-it-all mindset. He got rid of stack ranking and he got rid of Windows as a division. And he basically said, we are going to partner. Uh, since then, the stock price has gone up fivefold. One element of it is the changing people culture. That's amazing. I didn't, I didn't know the background on that story. We've shifted a little bit on Culture Factor 2.0 by talking about leading from wherever you are. And in your book, you write of self-actualization as something we can all tap into. Um, can you discuss how that would pertain to everyone in the workplace and how companies focused on the spreadsheet might be a detriment to this? Sure. So I believe that a successful organization is similar in some ways to a successful sports team. And successful sports team have a disproportionate share of talent, which is they've got better talent, um, commonly that work well together. So they're passionately aligned together against a common outcome, which is obviously to win the game, win the series, win whatever. Um, so you have three elements of it. You gotta have good people who have to be led in such a way that they work together against a common outcome, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And every person inside an organization 
has to recognize that what they end up doing needs to feed towards that end goal as long as they are an employee of that company. So that's number one. But if you start looking at talented people or extraordinarily or disproportionate share of talent, you will find you have different characteristics, different people, different skill sets and personalities. Very much like any good sports team have people with different skills and personalities. That has to be uniquely developed by each individual. Each individual obviously gets training and coaching from their company or from their team, but they also do a lot of work themselves, which is a form of self-actualization. In the case of what we do, for most of us are not lucky enough or talented enough to be in sports teams, most of what we do is not necessarily in enhancing our ability to physically perform, uh, which is one major component. You also have mental component to sports. But for us, a lot of it is mental and emotional more than it is physical. And, and that is what I call upgrading your mental operating system. And that I suggest to people is they spend an hour a day learning new things, which is a little bit easier if you're not moving around as we are these days. We are sitting at home. So sometimes it's a little easy, not for everybody. Some of us have kids and other things which are challenges. Um, and then the other one is to build a case for the exact opposite of what you believe. Those two things are extremely important for you to grow because if you cannot invest in your own growth and if you cannot think of contradictory opinions and perspectives, you will atrophy. That's a good point. Um Sort of going along with your analogy of playing on a team with a goal, um, you wrote in your book about how employees should have the freedom to fail gracefully and what can management do to exemplify this. Um, you also spoke about a couple other things, and, and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing these up is because you sort of brought in that team analogy, and I um, want you to touch on, uh, you spoke of tattoo moments and what a trampoline of trust is. And I think a good coach is probably very similar to a good leader in a business. So I'm, I'm going to let you play on that analogy if you want to continue, yeah. or you could, you could stop with the analogy. It's up to you. So what we eventually remember from our organizations, our bosses, when we work with clients, is we remember specific moments, specific meetings, specific activities most of the rest gets blurred. Those that we remember and resonate and we go back to are what I call tattoo moments. And a tattoo moment usually is most likely to happen when you are in a vulnerable position and someone can come and help you, or you are lost and someone steps in. Because at that particular time, you wonder who's going to help you. Because you've run into trouble, most people stay away from you but someone might come and help you. And that's not the only tattoo moment. There are lots of other tattoo moments. But in business, it's usually when you are under deep pressure and you could fail or things could go wrong and somebody or some people or a group of people help you through. Uh, and in many ways, when people basically are nice to you when you are succeeding, that's good. But what happens when you are not? So that's one fact. The trampoline of trust is this. We tell people that they should feel free to speak up. But what if you speak up or what if you decide to take an initiative and those initiatives fail? 
or if you speak up, your boss decides that they disagree with what you say. My basic belief is if they disagree with what you say, they should say, you know, which they've often told me, Richard, what did you drink in the morning? This is the most insane thing we've ever heard. But (laughs) once in a while you have some good thoughts, but this is pretty insane. But explain to us why you came up with this insanity. And, And it isn't like, how dare you come up? Tell us why, but we think it's insane, but explain. But also, by the way, we appreciate you coming up with these insane things because one out of three times these insane things actually are real right. One out of three is questionable and one out of three, it is insane, right? But unless I can talk about things that are risky or that not risky from an ethical or legal perspective, but maybe from a business perspective, from a lot of other perspectives, then how could I come up with new ideas? Because new ideas by their own way or new processes, no one has tried. And so you're venturing something. And the trampoline of trust is if someone basically doesn't like burn you because you make mistakes. Now, if you make mistakes again and again in exactly the same area, and if those mistakes are particularly to do with ethics or others, then you get yourself into deep trouble. But most of the time, you know, we make mistakes in how we present, the angle of a page, a proposal, right? And and if it's a new thing that we're trying and no one has told us how to do it before and we make a mistake, someone says, okay, we've learned now, uh, we move on. Trampolines of trust are very important. Tattoo moments are the way you build relationships with people. And if you know that people will be there when you get into trouble, it helps you. So the flip side of this is if there is, if you are working in a toxic culture um, and there are no tattoo moments where people lift you up and there is no trampoline of trust with your boss, um, you talk about this in the book as the turd on the table, which I love that, <laughs> and the magical thinking that makes the C-suite or management believe it's a brownie. Um, so we know in toxic cultures um, that is something that is pervasive. So how does a company turn this around? I I mean, I feel like, you know, during this pandemic, we're maybe at a pivotal moment where um, some of these types of cultures might be able to be shifted. What what are your thoughts on that? It is. So if you look at many organizations that have been successful and then suddenly stop succeeding, um, you will notice that Many times, it is not what you expect. It is not that there's been a technology shift that has overtaken the company, or there's a new market that's opened that they did not see. What you realize is people were were aware of the technology and were aware of the new market, but they were living in an environment where basically talking about that the current model was going to fail was not acceptable. So... To this date, you know, if you look at companies like Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo was a very well-run company until they decided that they needed to open up accounts and incented people to open up accounts at all costs. As a result, people began opening up fake accounts. People in that organization knew something bad was going on, but there was no environment where they could report up the line or to their bosses because everyone was basically told, if you don't open up the account, you'll lose the job, but if you open up the account, you'll get the bonus. And so you have this collective thing that opening up accounts is what we need to do. 
But nobody basically sort of asked, but by the way, we can't open accounts for dead people or just open accounts when someone walks into the bank and doesn't even need an account and you make them sign a piece of paper. As a result of that, uh, that environment turned toxic. It, they've now had four CEOs in five years. And the company basically is not done well compared to the other banks. You see this again in an environment which is very different like WeWork. So in WeWork, everybody thought that it was God's gift to the earth. It was nothing but basically a real estate company that basically gave good beer. That's all <laughs> it was, right? And therefore, it should not have been worth anything more or maybe a slight increase to you know companies like Regis and others. But they found themselves stalking themselves and the whole people, it was like a manic it was like a manic mantra, somewhat drug-infused, that they all believed that they were changing the world. And they even convinced bankers, and the bankers tried to take that company out at a $60 billion valuation. The company is worth $3 billion today, okay, less than a year. And that's what I mean. If you cannot speak truth to power, that organization is coming down fast. And when I used to be in business, I could walk into a company and smell this out within minutes. Just by asking some of the senior people a few questions, I could smell it out in minutes. And these days, I basically let companies know, if you've got a boss or bosses who don't let people speak truth to power, replace the bosses as fast as you can because the company is going to get into deep trouble. It doesn't matter how many clients the boss has, how many people the boss controls, they are going to destroy the company. Unless people can hear the other point of view, if they cannot hear that sooner or later, the company is going to get into trouble. So what's so hard with your book is that there's so many great chapters. And when you were interviewing recently um, on Morning Brew, you had said that um, all of the chapters can be read independently. They don't necessarily have to be read in order, or if they don't really pertain to you, you can skip it. Um, so there's so much good content in this book. I just want to say that to start with. And um, I'm going to jump forward in the book a little bit. So I'm sure. going to slightly switch gears. It all goes together, obviously. But um, I want. I feel like I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't touch on some other pieces in the book here. So um, I, and, and maybe this kind of goes back to question one a little bit. How do we move companies to recognize they need to work for the talent? And can you share with our listeners, um, you spoke in the book about niche, voice, and story sure. and how they play a role in this. So if you don't mind me switching gears over to that. Definitely. So, you know, the broad perspective is very simply this. Most companies today, the only reason they are better than other companies, most companies, not every company, is because they have people who are working better together that the real differentiating advantage is the people in the company. This is very true in service businesses, but it's also true in technology businesses because not every business either has either a brand or a moat that's so strong that it can be overcome, especially in today's world. Therefore, if you think that the number one cost you have in your company is talent and your number one differentiation is talent, you should think about how the company can support talent, which is how the company can work for talent versus the talent working for the company. That is a very different mindset. The mindset is, how do I get the best people to work here and join my team? If that makes sense? 
And, Absolutely. And, 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 and towards that, there, you know, individuals I've truly believed in the future of talent are going to be, all of us are going to be uh, gig workers. Uh, every one of us are going to be a gig worker, excepting that some of us, through choice, luck, or whatever, might become gig workers where the gig does not have an end date and we get benefits, which is basically called a job. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, you may have benefits and you may basically have no end date, but you actually move from project to project, which is what happens to most people who work in movie business, in consulting, whatever else. And I've studied those businesses and what has become very clear is successful people in those businesses have a brand. And sometimes people say, well, brand sounds really puffy. So, okay, let's not use that. Use the three words that I come up instead, which is they have a niche, they have a voice, and they have a story. What do I mean by that? It means that when someone is putting together, let's say, a team for a consulting company, whether it's McKinsey or Bain or whatever, they basically say, this is the type of project we are working on. Who in our database is good at this? So what's your niche? So give me three words that believe, make you believe that you believe you do some things at a world-class level or a very good level, right? Better than most people. Now, in my particular case, those three words are future change and innovation. That is my niche. So if clients or my company required that, they'd call me. If they needed operational things, if they needed statistics, they'd say, forget this guy. He's not that good on that. Okay. So that's niche. Voice. Voice is very important because people follow people. They don't follow titles. So a niche says what you're good at. A voice says who you are. And who you are is part of the casting in particular assignments, right? And in my case, that is authentic, provocative, and inspirational is what I've been told. I do what I say. I challenge the status quo. But even if I challenge you, I try, or at least I've been told, I don't leave anybody feeling down. I feel, I leave them feeling inspired. That even if I say, I don't think what you're doing is correct, this is what you should do, but I don't leave them feeling they're not right. You know, it's like, hey, I don't think this thinking is right, but that doesn't mean you're not right. In fact, I try to leave them inspired. So that's the voice. And the th last is the story, which is what, why should I believe you? And in my case, I'm global. I'm a mongrel, which is I have lots of different skill sets and I'm reinventing because it looks like every three, four years I reinvent my career. Even though I spent 38 years in the same place, I kept changing jobs, companies, uh, and kept growing. So those are my words, you know, future change, innovation, authentic, provocative, inspirational, reinventing, global, and a mongrel. And I've managed to reduce all of those into the words of future, provocative, and reinventing. And my blog is called Reinventing. And that becomes my focus point. But people should be able to come up with nine words to use as a frame and a filter a frame to sell themselves or to project or be known and a filter to look at opportunities as they come by. Because at some particular stage, you have to be good at a few things while understanding lots of things versus being kind of okay at lots of things. Interesting. I think everybody's going to be changing their LinkedIn profile with the, <laughs> with the top three things for niche voice and story after this. Um, 
I, I'm going to have to give some thought for myself, as a matter of fact. Um, you uh, alluded to your, your newsletter in here, right? The, um, and, and I'm going to put that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, Rashad has a, a free newsletter. I believe it's still free, right? It's, yeah, it's free. It'll co- continue to be free. And it's free in every sort of sense of the fact that it's, it's free to get. It's free of advertising. It's free of affiliate links. And it's uh, nothing gets done with your email address. Uh, it's completely free but it does have a particular cost, which is every Sunday, it takes five to seven minutes to read. Yeah. So it takes well, five I've, to I've really enjoyed time. it. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off course, but you had sure. mentioned that. I want to make, make sure our guests know I'll, I'll put that, um, yes, that link so, in the show notes. Exactly. So um, it's rashad.substack.com, which they can see in yeah. the notes. So, um, so let me just continue because when we spoke of, you know, niche voice and story, this does kind of... Um, dovetail into the concept of a personal brand. So you say that the personal brand um, must, again, dovetail with the organizational brand in your book. Um, Can you show us this through the view of a company and then separately through the vantage point of an individual? Sure. So if you look at it, you know, from the vantage point of, so what basically begins to happen is you need to know what your brand is and then you need to find a section of your company that allows you to thrive with that brand. Most companies are large enough. But let's say, if you think about my particular perspective, which is future change and innovation, I was interested in doing pioneering work. 25 years ago, I went to you know, folks at Leo Burnett and said, okay, I'm very good as an account person, et cetera. But I truly believe there's this future thing called interactive marketing, and I would like to try it because I think that's important for the future. And you've told me that I'm supposed to think about that. And they said, yeah, we should be thinking about that. But if you're willing to work by yourself, right now you have a team of 100 people. For something new, we can't give you teams. We won't, we'll pay you the same. We may give you one person to work with you. Uh, would you be willing to do that? And I said, yes. So in effect, the organization, right? made room for what I needed to do because of two reasons. One is they believed that what I was suggesting would be an important part of their future. But at the same time, it was not such an important part that they could give me unlimited money and people. Mm-hmm. So they said, mm-hmm. let's build that out, but build that out. And I had to adjust to the fact that I would have a team of nobody or a team of one. I'd still get paid the same and I was doing the things that I loved. So in effect, You've got the, you have to do something that aligns and helps the organization and the organization should obviously tell you how far you can go doing your new stuff or building your own particular skill set. That's what I mean by the two have to work. Now, if my company was not in an area that I was of a particular interest, let's say I discovered that my true passion was nursing. Okay. I couldn't figure out how to do it inside the company. So I would have to leave and think about a different place to go. So that's one. In, in, in the case of an individual where this is, I've seen it happening again and again. Uh, I've seen it happen with one of our daughters. So one of our daughters, our elder daughter, was very successful at Google. But her real passion at some particular stage was to make film. And while Google agreed to try to move her to the YouTube group, she was not interested in selling YouTube advertising. She was interested in making film. And so she put together her story voice niche 
and found that only tangentially, even a wonderful company like Google could do what she wanted to do because she wanted to be someone who created content for YouTube, not basically the person who works at YouTube, right? Or mm -hmm. ideally for Netflix or other kinds of places. And so for her to build that craft and skill set, she decided to leave Google, where she was doing tremendously and being paid very well, and go back to school to get a Master of Fine Arts in Filmmaking and to keep her parents happy also at MBA as a security blanket. <laughs> okay. And, you know, she now is working as a showrunner, to, as an assistant to a showrunner for a Apple Plus show. She's made two films, two short films. The latest one basically has uh, was uh, selected by Tribeca, and she's about to do a deal with a major network on that particular show. And she's working, you know, as I said, for a show that will run on Apple Plus uh, called, called Pachinko. Uh, where she is today is she loves what she's doing. Uh, it's exactly what she wants to do. And she's paid probably 35% what she used to get paid. But she's going to be very successful, and this is what she wants to do. You and, sound like a very proud father. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the reality of it is that uh, the, the, what she basically said to me was, I can continue to succeed at Google, and the people I work for are very, very good, and I look up to them as people, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing what this. Mm -hmm. I need to do something now. And the more I do this, the more I'll get used to the trappings of Google and the compensation and the harder and harder it will be for me to start doing what I really want. So she did not let herself be priced out of her dreams, which was fantastic. You know, it, it's great that she realized that at such a young age, it is pretty, pretty hard when you do get caught up in the trappings. Like if you are put on, yeah. um, you know, a, a leadership ladder, if you will, um, and the money starts to come in. Sometimes it's really hard to turn your ship around, right? It is, it is, it is. And, you know, I'm all for money. So my thing was, I told her, like, are you sure? But she was sure. Yeah. You you had also talked about, um, uh, again, talking about the personal brand dovetailing into the organizational brand. You spoke about Netflix in your book. Um, would you be able to share that example again for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, th you think about Netflix, the, the many reasons that Netflix has succeeded, um, the three reasons they've succeeded is one is obviously um, they have an amazing leader who was willing to take tremendous risks, including blowing up his own business, which was, you know, cannibalizing CD-ROMs uh, and going to streaming because he had learned that, you know, Blockbuster had failed for a long time to move from shops to sending CD-ROMs. So he didn't want to be in that mistake. Uh, the, so that was very innovative. The second is they've created a culture, and this is very, very important, of highly diverse, highly talented people who are given amazing responsibilities. So they don't have these big handbooks of holidays and what to do. They just basically say that, can you make sure that you believe it's good for Netflix, right? So they mm -hmm. treat people like adults. What that has happened and what that has done is it has created the ability to have many, many decision makers. 
So while you know Ted Sarandon is best known, he's now the co-CEO of Netflix, and he himself is amazingly brilliant. I do not know either of these folks, Reed Hastings, or but I read about them and admire them a lot. But he has under him many, many people, including many women of color and many people who actually have the green light decision. It's the reason why Netflix has so many different types of shows and TV shows, including some of the very best international shows, because they have created a culture that allows people to speak up and talk. At the very same stage, it's a culture that's difficult because they ask whether you're a keeper. And for every job, they simply ask whether you're still good enough. And they take it so seriously that the person who wrote a lot about their culture and how it basically works, uh, who was their chief talent officer, she herself lost her job because she was no longer a keeper. Interesting. And I've spoken with her and she said it was the right thing to do. She says the company needed a new set of talents, but she's very friendly with all of the people. And, you know, when Reed Hastings wrote her, his new book, she was very helpful in helping it put it together. So Rashad, as we move into AI, do you still believe that talent is the key competitive advantage? Um, and then the second part of that would be, and in your book, you mentioned that the C-suite should be focusing on their strategy and business model to ensure they attract, retain, and grow their talent. So how do they do that? So the first is talent will be even more important in the future than it is today. Primarily because the most talented people want to work with other talented people. And that is true when it comes down even to talent that wants to work on AI. So uh, the best talent today can work, who know these fields, can work in any company. But the companies they select are companies which give them freedom, that gives them access to lots of other people who are like them. So talent will continue to be the differentiating advantage. I believe the reason businesses need to think about this is because senior management in a business, I believe, has really only two major goals. The first is to set the strategic priorities of the company. What is the purpose? Who is the competition? What is the product line? How are they going to compete? And the second one is to inspire, motivate, and grow talent. That's it. Finished. Over and out. Other parts of the company can do all the other things that are important in running the company. But for management, those are the two. Any good leader will tell you strategy and talent management are the two key things, strategy slash vision. And for them to be able to do that is to a be aware of and speak to talent, be part involved in recruiting talent, including at middle levels, not necessarily junior levels, make sure that they're exposed to junior levels and recognize that in effect, without people, as a differentiator, they really don't have much differentiation. Interesting. Um, I'm going to lean in on another part here in your book, um, passion projects. Are passion projects a benefit to companies or like paying their people to work on their own dreams um, so they can leave upon launch? Well, you know, passion projects are important for two reasons. The first is if somebody is passionate about doing something, And letting them do something like that for some portion of their time allows you to keep them in business. And I've always basically said, 
having 70% to 80% of a world-class player is better than having two mediocre players, right? So one is, one is that. The second is um, if they basically tell you what their passion project is, very often the passion project is not completely out of the business. It's somewhere affiliated with the business. So I had it early in my career, you know, while my passion project was digital marketing, over time, people had passion projects about gaming. Another one had about music, the future of music. Another talked about something called social long before Facebook and Twitter. And I basically said, okay, if people, you want to do that, you could do that. Take 15, 20% of your time a day a week and do that. That put us in a very good position when online gaming, social, and all came. So part of it is, you know, when you're doing passion projects, there's also a cost-effective way of basically, uh, of cost-effective way of not only managing talent, but of starting to have early learning about new areas. Excellent. So um, one of my last questions, um, and then I'm going to give you a quick fire round if we have time. Sure. <laughs> um, developing the whole person in a remote work environment, what does that look like? Um, what it basically looks like is the following. Recognizing A, that the individual that you are looking at today is not working at home, but they're living in the office. And how do you make sure that they also get to stay at home? Because in today's world, we are on call all the time and anywhere there is a screen, it's a workplace. So we have to make sure that people don't just become work besotted. That's number one. Number two is when you're speaking with somebody, ask them about what are ways that they can grow, not just how they can do their job. A big challenge that we currently have is how do we grow talent? How do we grow skill sets? The third is to basically underwrite and provide access to all kinds of online training and other kinds of things that they can basically do from home. Because the issue really is, how can I continue to grow when I may not have as many opportunities to interact with other people or to learn from other people? Well, that's nice. I like that. Um, can I ask you quick, quick question? Sure. Yes. How is Rishad self-actualizing? I think if I am self-actualizing, it's in three different ways. Uh, the first way really is I am basically learning a lot about new things. Like I started this newsletter because I wanted to learn about the direct-to-customer business and Substack, for instance. The second is I'm a great reader and I'm taking this time to not only read, but watch a lot of film. So I basically watch a lot of television and film and think about it and expose myself to a lot of culture. So that is sort of the second part of it. So while one part is business related, the other one is sort of art related. Um, mm -hmm. And the third one is I love uh, teaching and I'm using this opportunity to teach people. So I've taken a lot of my speaking courses and or speaking things and turned them into teaching courses in the four areas that people are particularly interested, which we've talked about, which mm -hmm. is how do you upgrade your mental operating system? How do you lead with soul? How do you manage change so it sucks less? How do you think about the future? 
I love that. Um, one of the chapters we were unable to really tap into, so I'm just going to ask you sure. these quick questions. Who is your favorite poet? My favorite poet are two. A modern poet is T.S. Eliot, um, and an older poet is uh, William, Words, William Wordsworth. Uh, and those are the two sort of stuff. But I read widely because I believe that, you know, poetry is perfect words in perfect order. Oh, I like that. And who is your favorite artist? Uh, my favorite artist of all time is Pablo Picasso because he is many artists in one. Oh, very true. Um, rainy day or sunny day? Uh, I What I particularly like is a rainy day turning into a sunny day in the evenings because you see rainbows. Nice. And my very last thing, where is the first place you will travel to after this pandemic? I probably the first place that I will travel to after this pandemic is New York City to go visit one of our daughter's new homes. But right now they come here. Wonderful. Rashad, this was amazing. I know you need to jump off, but I can't thank you enough for coming on Culture Factor 2.0. This well, was fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for the great opportunity and sorry for the occasional technology staffers. Well, you know, that's what we're all living through right now. So no worries. And I will put uh, links in the show notes for both your book and your newsletter for everybody. Fantastic. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye. you, Holly. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye.